The time of this journey into the past takes place on December 7, 1941. This would be a day that would live in infamy. For December 7th was the day that the Empire of Japan attacked the United States fleet at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. This excursion in history then deals with those agonizing moments when the United States was suddenly and deliberately attacked by the Japanese at 0755 or 7.55 a.m. on Sunday morning, December 7, 1941. On this early Sunday morning, you are outside the mouth of Pearl Harbor on a minesweeper by the name of Condor. You are patrolling back and forth in the front of a submarine net that guards the entrance to the harbor. But in about 18 minutes, you will be going off duty. At 3.42 a.m. on the small minesweeper, watch officer Ensign McCloy sighted a strange white wave to the port. It was less than 100 yards away. He pointed the wave out to Quartermaster Utrecht, and they took turns looking with McCloy's binoculars. They decided it was a periscope of a submarine. As the Condor swept down on the position of the periscope, it disappeared. At this moment, Naval Intelligence at 14th Naval District Headquarters should have been notified. However, since the Condor was going off duty in the next few minutes, they decided to tell the relief ship what they saw. This would alleviate a lot of questions that they would have to answer down at 14th Naval District Headquarters after they got off duty. So, at 3.58 a.m., the Condor signaled by blink light the news to the destroyer ward which was relieving it. Sighted submarine on a westerly course, speed nine knots. The message was received by Lieutenant Junior Grade Gepner. He immediately told the skipper of the ward, Lieutenant Otterbridge. On reading the Condor's message, Otterbridge sounded to general quarters and the men tumbled to their battle stations. For the next half hour, the ward prowled about. Her lookouts and her sonar men were straining for any signs of a sub, but no luck. At 4.43 a.m., the crew was released and most went back to bed. The regular watch continued the search through the darkness of the night. The ward never bothered to report anything to 14th Naval District Headquarters as it thought that the Condor had already reported the incident. So one of the warning signs of impending danger went unnoticed. The submarine was there all right. It was waiting for the upcoming attack. And from time to time, it would report the location of the ships in the harbor to the attack force which was coming on. As far as this Sunday morning went then, all was quiet and radio station KGMB, the 24-hour-a-day broadcasting station at Honolulu, Hawaii, played on through the night, innocently awaiting dawn. The time is now 5.30 a.m. Hawaii time, and some 230 miles north and slightly east of Oahu, the decks of the Japanese attack force are readying the planes for the attack. The planes were brought to the flight deck, Motors sputtered and roared as they were given their final checks to make sure that the pilots would not by accident tap their wireless keys when they got into their planes or while their planes were in flight a piece of paper was inserted between the contacts of the transmitter this would ensure utmost radio silence down below the pilots were pulling on their clean underwear and freshly pressed uniforms 
Little groups gathered around portable Shinto shrines for prayers. As they arrived for breakfast, the pilots found a treat. Instead of the usual salted pike mackerel and rice mixed with barley, today they ate sikehan. This Japanese dish of rice boiled with red beans is reserved for only the most ceremonial of occasions. After breakfast, the pilots picked up the rations for the trips, sort of a box lunch. Next, they went to flight operations for one final briefing. On the flagship of the attack force, the carrier Akagi, flight commander Mitsuo Fushida, who would lead the entire attack on Pearl Harbor, told Admiral Nagamo, we are ready for our mission. On every carrier, the pilots now came spilling out of the dimly lit briefing rooms with the revised and latest information concerning the United States ships at Pearl Harbor. They had now had their last look at the enemy lineup. They had the latest data on wind direction and velocity, up-to-the-minute calculations on distance and flying time to Hawaii and back. Now the men emerged on the decks as the bright dawn swept the sky. One by one, they climbed into the cockpits of their planes. The engines were turned over and revved up. All eyes from the other ships were looking at the command ship, the Akagi, waiting for the flag signal to be given for the launch of aircraft. Flags were now hoisted. That meant get ready. Slowly, the six carriers swung into the wind. It was from the east and perfect for a takeoff. The striking force was now poised. Then the signal was given at 6 a.m. Hawaii time for the takeoff. The first planes lunged down the carrier decks into the wind, and one by one they took off and circled the carriers until the entire group was in the air. Once in the air, they thundered off toward Oahu. At about 6.30 a.m., at the mouth of Pearl Harbor, a key incident happened. A ship, the Antares, was towing a large barge about 100 yards behind it and was heading into Pearl Harbor. As the Antares approached the submarine net, Seaman Rayenbeg, the helmsman of the ward, saw a shadow in the water between the Antares and the barge it was towing. Helmsman Rayenbeg asked the quartermaster, Garin, to take a look at the curious black shadow with his binoculars. As Garin put his binoculars on the shadow, he saw a periscope. It was a sub trying to sneak into Pearl Harbor on the tail of the Antares. At the same time, a Navy patrol plane saw the same thing and began circling the object. Lieutenant Gropner immediately summons the captain to the bridge. Captain Otterbridge jumped from the chart room and went to the bridge. When he arrived, he took one look and sounded general quarters. It was now 6.40 a.m. All engines were signaled full ahead. 
The destroyer was in full action. She bounded from five to 25 knots. As the ward screamed down the position of the sub, they could see that the sub was running awash. Her conning tower was about two feet out of the water. In the choppy seas, the men caught a brief glimpse of its hull. Commence firing went the order. The ward was only 100 yards from its target. The first shot was fired at 6.45 a.m. and it whistled over the conning tower of the submarine and plunged into the sea beyond. The number three gun, however, hit the submarine at the base of the conning tower. The sub staggered from the blow, but kept going. In the next instant, the ward was right alongside the sub, and as the stern of the ship went past the submarine, depth charges one, two, three, and four rolled off into the sea. In a moment, huge geysers erupted, and the sub was instantly swallowed in a mountain of foam. It was at this moment that 14th Naval District Headquarters now got the news. It was 6.53 a.m. The message read, attacked, fired on, depth bomb, and sunk submarine operating in defensive area. And according to Navy regulations, it was sent in code. This means that precious minutes will be lost in decoding the message. Commander Kaminsky, who was in the decoding room, knew what it was all about and immediately tried to alert the chiefs. After going through Admiral's aides and a flock of other red tape, he finally, by 7.30 a.m., was able to get the message of what the ward had done to Admiral Kimmel. Admiral Kimmel, the commander of the base at Pearl Harbor, called for immediate confirmation, checking out the story, just to make sure it was so. While the Navy was having its hands full with this event, the Army was totally ignorant of what was going on. The Army for some time had been operating a new and fascinating gadget called radar at its Opana station. This was located at the northern tip of Oahu at a place called Kahuku Point. As the dawn brightened and sunrise was coming, the radar station was being operated by Private Joseph Lockhart. He was the operator of the radar shack and Private George Elliott, who was just learning about this new gadget. The radar station usually operated from 7 a.m. to 4 p.m., but since November 24th, which was the day that Washington, D.C. had sent a war alert to Hawaii, General Short, the commander of the Army at Hawaii, felt that it would be better if the radar shack operated from 4 a.m. until 11 a.m. On Sundays, however, the radar shack could shut down and secure at 7 a.m. for the rest of the day. It was now seven o'clock, but closing time made little difference to Privates Lockhart and Elliott. They had to wait for an army truck to come and pick them up. It usually came about seven o'clock, but you couldn't set your watch by it. With this in mind, Lockhart decided to keep the set running until the truck came. It would be a good time to give Elliott more instruction on this fascinating gadget. So Elliott was given his big chance to operate the radar shack. At 7.02, as Elliot was fiddling with the controls and Lockhart was explaining the various echoes and blips, there came onto the oscilloscope a dancing line of lights. The blips, as they are called, flashed onto the screen far bigger than anything Lockhart had ever seen before. The signal was almost as big as the main pulse the unit was sending out. Lockhart felt that the machine was broken. 
He felt that somehow the main pulse of the machine had gotten out of kilter, much as a pinball machine goes tilt. Lockhart displaced Elliot, tested the controls, and found out that there was nothing wrong with the machinery. The blips were still shimmering before them. It was telling them that there was something out there bigger than they had ever picked up before, and far beyond the greatest range at which they had previously gotten any indications whatsoever. At 7.06 a.m., Elliot tried to raise someone at Army headquarters. Finally, he got through to the information center switchboard operator, Private Joseph McDonald. Breathlessly, Elliot broke the news. There's a large number of planes coming in from the north, three degrees east of north. McDonald immediately relayed the message to the officer of the day at Schofield Barracks, a man by the name of Lieutenant Kermit Tyler. Tyler was unimpressed. McDonald returned to his switchboard and talked this time to Private Lockhart, who was very excited. The blips are getting bigger than ever, and the distance is shrinking fast. Then Lockhart insisted on talking directly to the officer of the day. So Lieutenant Tyler picked up the phone. Lockhart then made his report. Sir, it is 7.15 a.m., and the blips are coming in fast, at least 180 miles per hour. They are 92 miles away at this time. Tyler thought a moment, and then he said, well, don't worry about it. And then he hung up. Tyler knew virtually nothing about his job at Shafter Information Center. It just happened to be his turn to pull the duty as officer of the day. And besides, what these guys probably saw were those 12 B-17s due in from Hamilton Air Force Base in California. So one of the last opportunities to warn of the coming attack was gone. There was still one last chance. An hour before the attack, while Lockhart and Elliot were just beginning to pick up the blips on the radar scope, Magic, the cryptographic department, has just unscrambled a message. It was intercepted while in transmission from Japan to the Japanese embassy in Washington, D.C. It read, Will Ambassadors Karusu and Numura please submit to the United States government our reply to their proposals at 1 p.m. Washington, D.C. time on December 7th? Why? Why have a conference on Sunday? The message was placed in the hands of Captain Kramer. He was capable of understanding its importance. This message was a tip-off. It told the exact time of an attack somewhere. Kramer dashed toward his superior officer's quarters with the message. One o'clock Washington, D.C. time was dawn in Oahu. With the fatal moment of the attack, just minutes away, the message was put into the hands of General Marshall. He saw the tremendous importance of the vital message which had been intercepted. He caught up the phones and tried to get through. No luck, line interference. How about a radio wireless? Again, Pearl Harbor radio could not be reached. Too much static. Send it by Western Union cables then went the order. And so, by Western Union cables, the message went. It arrived in Honolulu, minutes before the attack. 
but since it was in code and could only be decoded by the Army Intelligence Center, it had to be sent by a boy on a bike. By the time the messenger boy with whom the message had been dispatched was halfway to the Army base, the Japanese attack had begun. One irony after another would almost convince one that Pearl Harbor was decreed by fate, that it was predestined to happen, and that there was nothing that mortal man could do to stop the events of time. While the message was being received by Western Union in Honolulu, the Japanese planes were winging their way closer, ever closer, to the last instant of peace. Commander Mitsuo Fushida and his attack force had been in the air now for almost an hour and a half. Beneath him and the Japanese attack force, a thick white stretch of clouds went on endlessly. Flight Commander Fushida couldn't tell if he was on course or not, so he flicked on his radio direction finder and picked up radio station KGMB, the 24-hour good music station from Honolulu. He took his bearings on that station and followed the beam right to his target. Yet, the cloud cover did not break. Flight Commander Fushida began to worry. Would it be this bad over Pearl Harbor? Then the radio station from Honolulu told him, partly cloudy, mostly over the mountains, ceiling, 3,500 feet, visibility good. So what Fushida's reconnaissance planes had failed to report to him, the good station at Honolulu, Hawaii did. Fushida now knew that he could count on the clouds breaking once he reached the island. And sure enough, as if tapped by a magic wand, the clouds parted and almost directly ahead, the attack force saw a white line of surf breaking against a rugged green shore. It was Kahuku Point. Members of the attack squadron were charmed with the lush green island and the clear blue waters. The first wave of the main body of 189 aircraft sighted the northern point of Oahu 10 minutes before 8, at which time they split up. In accordance with the sound air warfare doctrines of the day, the first objective was to make sure that Americans could not get any aircraft into the air to hinder them. Each pilot knew what he must do. Some would hit the airfields, others would strike at the fleet, and so on down the line. And so it began. The first planes, the dive bombers, streaked in low over Pearl Harbor at 0755, 7.55 a.m., which will become known in history as the last instant of peace. The day of infamy was about to start. The dive bombers and the torpedo planes roared in low. Over the ships they came and cut loose their charges of death and destruction. They broke over the fleet like a sudden storm. They came in at every direction. They launched their deadly missiles from a low altitude at the sitting ducks of battleship roll. Each pilot had been carefully briefed on the particular angle from which to launch his bomb or torpedo to get the best run and how best to cause maximum confusion in the defenses of the Americans. In a few moments, the harbor was crisscrossed by the white wakes of the torpedoes, and tremendous explosions were shattering the steel sides of the battleships. The horizontal bombers were immediately behind them with their bombs, landing as the torpedoes were exploding. 
every one of the five outboard battleships took one or more torpedoes in the first few moments, while the inboard battleships were peppered with bombs. The Utah had been berthed where the aircraft carriers were usually moored, so she got it the heaviest. In battleship row, two torpedoes streaked past the repair ship Vestal and reached the battleship Arizona, while a heavy, armor-piercing bomb found its way to the Arizona's magazine, the place where the gunpowder is stored. There was a terrific detonation, and the whole forward half of the ship became a total wreck. Great oil fires now poured up their flames and great billows of smoke. Just south of her, the West Virginia had taken five torpedoes and several bomb hits. Enormous rents were torn in her plating. There was a fierce fire amidship and she began settling to the bottom. The Tennessee, lying inboard, was not too badly damaged, but she was pinned against the bollards by the sinking West Virginia and was imperiled by the oil fires raging in the other ships. The Oklahoma received four torpedoes in the first minutes and was soon listing extravagantly until she finally rolled completely over. It lay there like some immense whale with her bottom and propellers showing to the now densely smoke-filled sky. The California had taken many bomb hits and two torpedoes and she slowly settled at her moorings while huge fires tore away at her innards. Many of the cruisers and destroyers had also been destroyed, and all of this had been accomplished within the first half hour of the attack. As the torpedo planes faded away, the horizontal and dive bombers raged on unhindered over the entire inferno. About 8.40 a.m., the first onslaught dwindled. The stunned and shattered ships were beginning to revive from the shock. Then out of this great holocaust came a faint cheer. The Nevada, the battleship Nevada. Suddenly before everyone's eyes, the Nevada was swinging out and getting underway. In spite of the torpedo and bomb hits, she was underway and headed down channel. She ground past the burning wrecks of her sister battleships, proudly heading toward the entrance of the harbor. The Nevada was trying to make it out. It seemed utterly incredible. A battleship usually needs two or three hours to light the boilers. But in 45 minutes, the Nevada was moving. While the Nevada was making her gallant bid for an escape, the second wave of Japanese planes struck Pearl Harbor at 0850. The first thing they saw was the Nevada moving down harbor. They pounced upon her and got in seven or eight additional heavy bomb hits. This started serious flooding, and so the Nevada's skipper decided that rather than get sunk in the narrow entrance of the harbor and block all ingress and egress, that the best thing he could do would be to beach the craft. So he ran her ashore. Besides the Nevada being raked over the coal, many of the lesser ships, the cruisers and destroyers, were also heavily damaged. By 9.45 a.m., the Japanese job was done. The last of the raiding planes faded into the silent skies. The backbone of the United States fleet had been shattered. It would be several months before the damage could be undone. 2,403 persons, including military and civilian, would die of the attack. The United States lost three battleships, the Arizona, Oklahoma, and Utah, along with the destroyers Kassin and Downs. Most all other ships that were damaged at Pearl Harbor were salvaged. 
and would later on return into the war to pay their respects to the Japanese. The United States also lost 188 aircraft. And oh yes, the Japanese, they lost 29 planes. Not bad for a morning's work. On December the 8th, Capitol Hill swelled with a spirit of angry unity as the members of the Senate and the House of Representatives filed into the House chambers to hear the President's war message. At 12.29 p.m., President Franklin D. Roosevelt entered. There was cheering applause, and after a brief introduction by the Speaker of the House, Sam Rayburn, the President, dressed in formal morning attire, stood alone at the rostrum. As he stood there, Republicans and Democrats alike were cheering him and applauding him. As they quieted down, the President grasped the rostrum and began his war message. Yesterday, December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. It will be recorded that the distance of Hawaii from Japan makes it obvious that the attack was deliberately planned many days or even weeks ago. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. No matter how long it may take us, to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. With confidence, in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. The facts of Pearl Harbor are now many years behind us, and yet, because of what happened there, this past still lives with us today. Could this attack on Pearl Harbor explain why over half of our tax money is spent on military preparedness and nuclear deterrence? 
What does this attack of many years ago mean in this age of missiles and thermonuclear weapons? Could it mean that we must never be caught by surprise or unprepared again? Whatever the meaning of Pearl Harbor was, we must find it so that we may keep our democracy alive for the future generations of Americans to come.